innate prayer of illumination. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we prepare to open your word, we want to find treasures new and old therein. We want to be encouraged. We want to be challenged. We want to, above all else, see Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, see his love for us, see his goodness in blessing us, in sustaining us, and equipping us each and every day. And we pray that your spirit would open our eyes to see those things. Help us here in the sanctuary, those that are watching via the live stream, help us all to be encouraged by your grace and goodness in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading is from Romans 6. We're going to read the first 14 verses. It seemed good to me for those that yet have to have their family visit to hear this again read and be reminded of what it is. And it also connects with our text, which deals with the doctrine of baptism. So we're going to read Romans 6, verses 1 through 14, before we turn to Article 34 in the Belgic Confession. Romans 6, beginning at verse 1, hear God's word. What shall we say then? Are we to commit, continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Then to the Belgic Confession, Article 34, page 190, 191, 192 uh, in our Forms and Prayers books, or page 868 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. We're going to read together this teaching concerning baptism, keeping in mind what we studied when we were last in the confession concerning the sacraments, that God, mindful of our crude and crudeness and weakness, has ordained sacraments for us to seal His promises in us and to pledge His goodwill and grace towards us and to nourish and sustain our faith. Now we concern ourselves very specifically with the water of baptism. And here we confess this. We believe and confess that Jesus Christ, in whom the law is fulfilled, has by his shed blood put an end to every other shedding of blood which anyone might do or wish to do in order to atone or satisfy for sins. Having abolished circumcision, which was done with blood, he established in its place the sacrament of baptism. By it we are received into God's church and set apart from all other people and alien religions, that we may be dedicated entirely to him bearing his mark and sign, 
It also witnesses to us that He will be our God forever, since He is our gracious Father. Therefore, He has commanded that all those who belong to Him be baptized with pure water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In this way, He signifies to us that just as water washes away the dirt of the body when it is poured on us, and also is seen on the body of the baptized when it is sprinkled on Him, so to the blood of Christ does the same thing internally in the soul by the Holy Spirit. It washes and cleanses it from its sin and transforms us from being the children of wrath into the children of God. This does not happen by the physical water, but by the sprinkling of the precious blood of the Son of God, who is our Red Sea, through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh, who is the devil, and to enter the spiritual land of Canaan. So ministers, as far as their work is concerned, give us the sacrament and what is visible, But our Lord gives us what the sacrament signifies, namely the invisible gifts and graces, washing, purifying, and cleansing our souls of all filth and unrighteousness, renewing our hearts and filling them with all comfort, giving us true assurance of His fatherly goodness, clothing us with the new man, and stripping off the old with all its works. For this reason, we believe that anyone who aspires to reach eternal life ought to be baptized only once without ever repeating it, for we cannot be born twice. Yet this baptism is profitable not only when the water is on us and when we receive it, but throughout our entire lives. For this reason, we detest the error of the Anabaptists, who are not content with a single baptism once received and also condemn the baptism of the children of believers. We believe our children ought to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant as little children were circumcised in Israel on the basis of the same promises made to our children. And truly, Christ has shed his blood in no, le- no less for washing the little children of believers than he did for adults. Therefore, they ought to receive the sign and sacrament of what Christ has done for them, just as the Lord commanded in the law that by offering a lamb for them, the sacrament and the, of the suffering and death of Christ would be granted them shortly after their birth. This was the sacrament of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, baptism does for our children what circumcision did for the Jewish people. That is why Paul calls baptism the circumcision of Christ. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is uh, a substantial amount of good theology uh, provided for us in this article, Article 34 of the Belgian Confession. It is almost three full pages in our liturgical forms book, uh, and it, it's filled with encouraging, comforting words intended to equip and enable all believers, each one of us. And I think that's also a good place to start when we think about baptism, because I think too often when we consider baptism, Our minds, because we so often see it in relation to babies, think that it's a word only either to parents, which it is not, it's a word to the child, or just to that child. That baptism, when we see it administered, is really God only having a private moment with that family, with that individual, and not with all of us as congregation. But every time we see the water of baptism poured out, the Lord is speaking again to us, to we who have received, not 
re-baptizing us, certainly not repeating what He said to us in the first place, for the Lord never needs to repeat Himself. That is, when God has spoken, it is sure to be. It will come to pass. He may remind us of those blessings and promises, but we certainly do not want to make the Lord stutter. But when we see the water of baptism poured out, then we can be reminded of God's good Word to us. A word of hope, a word of promise, a word of cleansing and of power, a word of grace and goodness. Therefore, baptism is or ought to be for all of us a very precious, a very rich sacrament. One, as our confession reminds us, speaks to us every day of our lives. But if it's going to speak to us, we have to get it straight. We have to understand what the Bible teaches about baptism. And if we're going to do that, we have to start by admitting that it is, in fact, God who defines, determines, describes baptism. That's not agreed on in the church, you understand. Not everybody believes that it is God who determines the meaning of of baptism. There are a lot of different perspectives on this sacrament, not just, but also within the Reformed faith. But in the church more broadly, in the Christian church more broadly, some will suggest that baptism is less a matter of God speaking a word to us and more a matter of my speaking a word to God. Some see baptism as an accomplishing of, or as accomplishing its purpose, rather, Uh, by my declaring that I am dedicating my life to the Lord. That's one of the different perspectives that exists within the church. There are others that believe that baptism is a power so wonderful that you don't need anything besides it. That if you're baptized, if the water has touched your forehead, then you are definitely and will always and forever be saved. It, It operates within its own power. It It accomplishes its own promise. There is no need for faith or for trust in Jesus Christ. Some also see baptism as a way for the church to simply manage her members. A little more cynical perspective. A perspective maybe of our world that we use baptism uh, to to say these are the really blessed people and and everybody else is, is, is a terrible person that we should have nothing to do with. This is how the world so often views baptism. But if we're going to understand baptism, if we're going to be comforted by baptism, if we're going to be encouraged by baptism, we must hear the water of baptism and the promises of baptism not on the basis of our own perspective of it, but on the basis rather of what God has said. After all, why do we baptize anyone? Why is anyone in the church baptized? The simple answer is, is because Jesus commands it. Because Jesus told us to. We didn't decide to. We didn't make this ritual up in order to satisfy ourselves or in order to mark ourselves. No, when Jesus, after His resurrection, after He spent His time with the disciples for those 40 days, met with them outside of Jerusalem and then spoke these words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Why do we baptize anyone? Baby, adult, it doesn't matter. Why do we baptize anyone? We baptize them 
Because Jesus commands us to. And He commands us to precisely because He had come, died on the cross, and risen again. The confession reminds us rather clearly and well that in Jesus Christ, the rituals of bloodshedding were brought to a close. All of the Old Testament sacrifices that involved a goat, a bull, a lamb, a bird, anything that involved the shedding of blood was brought to an end by the fullness, the full shedding of Jesus' blood. They were all pictures. They were all promises of the coming Messiah, the Lamb who would be slain. And when He was slain, then they no longer are necessary. Not, we've never, ever slaughtered an animal in worship. We've never uh, brought before the Lord in worship an, uh, on the altar, on the burning altar, a bull or a ram or a lamb of any kind. Because in Jesus Christ, we no longer need all of those bloodshedding ceremonies, including circumcision, you understand. Circumcision was also a bloody, you might say, sacrifice. A bloody ritual. A reminder that blood had to be shed. Indeed, that your blood had to be shed, for you are a sinner. But that in Jesus Christ... His blood would be sufficient for you. So that when Jesus came, even as we've understood and learned through our study of the book of Galatians, circumcision comes to an end, doesn't it? Paul insists rather passionately, doesn't he, that no one should be circumcised, at least not in the way of the Old Testament, in the way of the Old Testament faith. As Paul says in Galatians 5, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Paul says, if you think that by being circumcised, you are somehow or another earning points with God, that you are somehow or another achieving salvation, you are a fool, for none of it is true. Circumcision has been ended as a sacrament, as a sign and seal of God's covenant promises. It has ceased not simply been replaced, not simply been transitioned out of. It has ended, and a new thing, a new sacrament has begun. Although that new sacrament does retain some of that old sacrament's teaching. We shouldn't miss that. What God was saying in circumcision is echoed to some degree in baptism. Paul makes that point, doesn't he? In Colossians chapter 2, in the verses 11 and 12 in him says Paul you are all that is in Jesus you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands what did circumcision represent it represented the removal of sin the forgiveness of sin the cleansing of Christ's saving work in whom him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through power in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Indeed, in circums- or in baptism, rather, we have the full identity with Christ, as we read from Romans 6, not only the entrance into death, but also the rising to new life and to the new power of life. Thus, when Jesus established and authorized, when he commanded baptism, it was because circumcision had come to an end and he wished now to mark his new covenant people in a way that was distinctive, that was reflective of the new reality that he had brought about 
by his dying on the cross and being raised new. Notice how in the Old Testament, circumcision marked, identified those who belonged to the new covenant community. You think of Abram's words or God's words to Abram in Genesis 17 when he establishes circumcision. He marks his people. He says, this is how you know you belong to me. You're circumcised on the eighth day. In fact, if you're not circumcised on the eighth day, then you don't belong to me. Something you'll remember Moses discovered the hard way. Well, in the same way, Jesus marks his people in the New Testament, identifying believers and their children with the water of baptism. Now, not with a bloody ritual, but by a water ritual, identifying believers and their children, even as Peter said, you'll remember how the people said, men and brethren, after they heard the word of Peter, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom our Lord calls to Himself. Thus, Jesus says, I give this sacrament, I give this ritual, I fill it with its meaning, I mark you by its water, by its seal and sign, and by it I declare that you belong to my people. By, to my people. Now, we can say more, and indeed we'll say more in subsequent points in this sermon, but I want us to stop here for a minute and just appreciate this. That baptism is a declaration by Jesus to believers and their children that they belong to His covenant community, that they are children of the Heavenly Father. Because here already we can begin to harvest the great encouragement we ought to gain from knowing we are baptized. Baptism is not something you can earn nor something that you can purchase. It is instead a gift from your Savior to you. A word from Him meant to encourage you. Meant to sustain you. Meant to speak into your heart a word of grace. Not for you to speak to Him. Notice that. In baptism, in contrast from the Lord's Supper, in baptism we are passive. We receive the water. We don't say or do anything. In the Lord's Supper, we take and we eat. In baptism, we are spoken to. And the Lord says to us, you belong to my Father. You belong to this family of faith that He is redeeming. You belong to this community of the covenant. And that alone ought to already encourage our hearts. To know that God is our Father is to know true and profound comfort because He's the sovereign God who rules over all things, who works all things for the good of His people. He's the sovereign God that can take the worst moment of your life, the worst despicable difficulty you've ever had to endure and turn it into a glorious moment of praise. He's the one who made the cross of Calvary the darkest day of history into the most glorious day of hope and praise. To know this Father is 
is to know that He will always lead you into green pastures, that He will, even when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, bring you in the, on the other side to a place of joy and blessing. It is to know that nothing is meaningless in your life. Everything is purposeful. It means to understand that your life is constantly advancing to the glorious end that He's purposed for you. It means to know that you are valued and loved for He has claimed you in His Son. To know that God is our Father is to know that we belong. That we belong not because of our ability, not because of our potential or accomplishments, but because He has claimed us for Himself in His mercy. To know that God is our God is to know that we have a refuge. To know that we have a hope in the midst of the storms of life. To know that God has spoken His word of promise to you is to know security and stability in the most insecure and unstable world. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. When your life seems to be falling apart all around you, you can call to mind the truth of God's promise to you. You were baptized, therefore you belong to Him. Therefore you can come in prayer before Him and say, Father, You have promised. Now keep Your Word. Work all things for my good. Because there you find hope and comfort and peace. We must resist the temptation to redefine baptism or reconfigure it to our own satisfaction. Baptism is a glorious grace when we hear what Jesus is saying. Our version of baptism is never better. Let us take to heart to know what God says to us in Christ for it has an abiding value and significance. It allows us to get up every morning and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It enables us to say on our darkest days that Your mercies are new every morning. Because we know that the God of gods, the, heaven, the God who created heaven and earth, the God who rules all things by His power, from nations, from stars and planets to nations, to the cells that might be cancerous in our body, He rules all these things for our good. And we belong to Him not because we've done anything, but because He says, I choose you. You belong to Me. Now, if that's all baptism were to teach, I don't think anybody would get too excited. I think we'd all be encouraged. I think we'd all say, well, that's wonderful. Let's go home. We've all heard enough. The Lord, our God, is our God. And if all baptism does is mark us as being in relationship with God, why is there such a disagreement within the church over this sacrament? Well, the confession goes on to teach us that the message of baptism involves not only the ministry of the Father towards us, but also of the Son, also of the Holy Spirit. What benefit is there is to belonging to God's covenant of grace? What benefit is there to belonging to the covenant community? Well, there's the greatest possible benefit, says the confession, 
Indeed, says the water or the word of God. For not only is the water of baptism the promise of our Heavenly Father's care in our lives, the water of baptism is also, as the Word of God teaches, the promise of Jesus to cleanse us from all our sins. In Acts 22, verse 16, we hear these words from the Apostle Paul. He says, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Call on His name. Baptism is the sign and seal, the picture, but also the promise of our being forgiven of all our sins. Indeed, that's why the Word of God speaks of baptism so very powerfully with words that might make us a bit uncomfortable. For the water of baptism is also the Spirit's promise to work powerfully within us to bring new life out of death out of the death of sin that otherwise would define us. Listen to Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us, writes Paul, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal or and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Indeed, so faithful is God, so complete is God's promise to His people concerning His grace and goodness that the Apostle Peter can speak about baptism in a very striking way, in a way that might seem to us too heavy, too hard. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3, speaking about Christ's suffering, speaking about God's deliverance from our sin reminds us about Noah and the ark that was prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through water and then says this, baptism which corresponds to this, that is to the water of the flood and to the ark and all the rest, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Oh, now we say, wait a second, Peter. Thank you very much, but you've definitely got that wrong. Baptism doesn't save me. No, 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 no. That is not something we believe. Before we take issue with the inspired writer, the apostle of Christ, we ought to ask ourselves, how can Peter say such a thing? I mean, he goes on, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says you can claim before God this promise when you stand before Him saying, Lord, not for anything I have done, but that You have given to me this rich promise. You've made me bold. You have promised to forgive my sins. I claim that promise by faith now. And indeed, what greater gift can there be than this gift of God's grace? I mean, every day, don't we struggle with the reality of our sin? With our failures as persons, as those in relationship with others, as those before the face of God. We all know that we fail, we falter, we are so weak in ourselves. 
Do you not see how precious a promise it is to you then to know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that God Himself in the water of baptism has said, using your very name, that promise is for you. It is not just for others, but for you. That you can cling to that promise in faith. That you can cling to the Savior who makes that promise, whose blood is symbolized, sealed in the water of baptism. You can believe that promise with absolute certainty. God will forgive you of your sins. You say, yeah, but I have committed such grievous sins. The Lord knows Jesus' blood is greater than anything that you have, you have done. But I've repeatedly sinned. Jesus knows His blood is enough for you. Cling to it. Claim it. Because He has promised it to you with complete confidence and faithfulness. I mean, every day, we need help, don't we? To repent and believe. We need help for the Holy Spirit to give us life to help us to walk in righteousness. Every day we need help to be patient, to be kind, to be thankful, to be good. Every day we need help to repent. Think of it, we are called to repent and believe. Even that we can't do on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to equip and enable us to know that you're not alone. To begin each day knowing that God Himself has said, I've given you My Spirit so that you may have strength to walk in the way, to know that we are not alone, but that the Spirit is at work within us, is for us so great a comfort who desire to live for the Lord, who love to live for the Lord, who are burdened by the failure of our sin. Here is a promise that is rich, for all who believe. Too quickly we think we can do it ourselves. Too quickly we fall into works righteousness, even as we heard this morning. Baptism keeps us rooted in grace, focused on the giver, not on the recipient. And it allows, it allows us to say, I am unworthy, but His grace is sufficient for me. Too quickly we fall into the other pit, Imagining that we can't do the Christian things we're called to. Imagining that we haven't the strength, we haven't the grace, we haven't the, the power to be the Christian that we want to be. But the water of baptism says, I've given you my Spirit that you may be transformed and encouraged and equipped, that you may bear up under these trials, that you may succeed in the midst of these burdens, that you may experience victory even at the moment of greatest defeat. Baptism inspires us by the power of God's grace in His Son and Spirit, equipping us to live in praise of His name. But don't you see, that's precisely why baptism is such a challenge for us. For us. Sometimes we think the enormity of this grace is too much. That is... We know and we grieve over those who have in the past had their name pronounced, the water poured on their head, and they have rebelled against God and left the things of the faith. And we say to ourselves, what then? What then? Was God's promise not true to them? Was God's promise not faithful for them? Did God not keep His promise to them? And if them... If not to them, or if He didn't keep His promise to them, then what about me? Will He not keep His promise also 
to me? Or we also struggle with, don't we, those who maybe sit in church, those who uh, sit comfortably in the pew, but whose lives are such an immorality or are not lived in the power of Christ or the Spirit of Christ, who, who have received the outward sign, who have received the mark of the covenant, but it seems not to have penetrated to within their hearts so that they might live in praise of God. And so we say to ourselves, well, wait a minute, maybe if instead of, instead of putting so much blessing, instead of pouring so much encouragement into the water of baptism, maybe we dial it back a bit. Maybe we say to ourselves, well, you know what, the water of baptism, it's for some people, not for everybody. Uh, and you have to show if it's you. You have to prove that it's you. And so find ourselves quickly in that camp of works righteousness again where we have to justify ourselves before God. But what else do we do? How else can we do it? Experience tells us that the water of baptism is either full of encouragement or it is false. And that is not an option any of us wants. But what if? What if it's enough to remember, as the confession tells us, it's not the, the water of sac- the sacrament that, that washes away our sin. That when Peter says baptism now saves you, he doesn't mean that the water of baptism saves you. Peter knows that water can't save you. Knows that, that water can't pour the Holy Spirit into your life. He knows that it is the promise of the ever-faithful God to apply the finished work of Christ in your life It is that faithfulness that is what works the grace of God into our hearts. That's the thing, isn't it, with promises? Because promises must be either believed or rejected. Promises require, promises force a response from you. They demand, do you believe it? Yes or no? They challenge us to make the external internal. To say it is not only true generally, it's true for me. I believe it. I accept it. I embrace it. Indeed, those who fail to embrace this Word of God cannot then claim the benefit of it. You can't say to God, I don't believe you, but if you would save me, that'd be great. I don't believe that you've given me the forgiveness of sins because I don't believe I'm a sinner, but I believe I'm going to go to a better place when I die. You don't get to say, I get to live as I wish with all the immorality of my life. I don't believe the Holy Spirit's been poured into my life, but I believe I'm going to heaven. Those who fail to embrace the Word of God cannot claim the benefit. And those who deny their need of this grace never once diminish any element of it. They don't diminish the rich promise of the sacrament for those who believe. Isn't that Paul's words in Romans chapter 3? Those so well-known words. He's talking concerning now Jews. He has just said that all Gentiles are under the judgment of God. And now he asks, what advantage has the Jew? What value is circumcision? Oh, he says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Ah, but somebody says, 
What if some were unfaithful? Ah, there, there is the existential crisis, isn't it? The water of baptism has been poured out, but the child has rejected God and left the faith. Paul asks, does their faithfulness nullify the promise, the faithfulness of God? He answers, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone a liar. As it is written that you may be justified by your, in your words and prevailed when you are judged. God forever keeps His promise. Let that be the encouragement of your heart. Let that be what speaks away the doubts of your spirit that, that lifts your spirit when you need to live for the Lord As you face the challenges of life, speak that word to your heart that says, I've been baptized. When the devil comes to tempt you, say, but I've been baptized. When the world says you can't beat us, you can't defeat us, we're stronger than you, say, I've been baptized and he who is with me is greater than he who is with the world. Rest in the promises of God by believing them, by embracing them, by laying hold of them in faith. For God's faithfulness is not diminished a whit by the unfaithfulness of sinners. Those who must face the judgment of a God they have rejected. What a terror it is to having received the richest gift that life can afford, the gift of baptism. What a terror it will be for those who have been baptized and now must explain to the righteous and holy God why they despised His gift, why they rejected his grace. The world, they will suffer in their ignorance. Those who have been baptized will suffer greater for their wickedness. Because they have all the more said to God, no. Now isn't that exactly why we shouldn't baptize babies? Because we can't know how they'll respond. We can't see if they are truly in or just on the outside looking in. Did they just receive the water of baptism, but not what the water of baptism represents? Did they get the fullness of what the sacrament promises? If baptism is about the person earning the blessing, deserving the blessing, proving they are worthy of this blessing, then baptizing babies is a problem. But what if baptism is about God extending grace to His people, not because they deserve it, but because God in His mercy has chosen to include them in His family? Indeed, isn't that the message that rings throughout all of Scripture? That is, that God has always included babies within His covenant. Just go to the very beginning. Start with the very first covenant. Covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden. The covenant of works as it is called. You remember that, of course, Adam sinned. And that as a result of his sin, what happened to his babies? They weren't born yet when he sinned. We understand that. But they were eventually born. And what happened to them? Well, they were born sinners, weren't they? They were born under the judgment that Adam had deserved by his rebellion against God. Think of Noah. We'll look at a more positive example. Noah. God comes to Noah. God says to Noah, I choose you. I'm going to save you. Oh, oh, and your wife. And your sons. And your sons' wives. 
Now, why were those seven other people, except for Noah, we'll exclude Noah, why were those seven other people included in the promise of God to save his people? Why were these people brought into the ark? It wasn't because they deserved it. It wasn't because they were worthy. It's because God claims a covenant representative and their seed. He's always done that. Abram, I claim you and everybody bought with your money, born into your house, born to your body, they belong to me. David, I claim you, David, and all of your sons after you. God always includes children in his plan. Isn't that exactly why Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, blessed the little children? Though the disciples said no. Jesus said, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Indeed, as the the confession rightly reminds us, that is precisely why a lamb was to be sacrificed for children when they were born then after the time of purification was done you'll remember we saw this with respect to jesus though it was two turtle doves that were sacrificed for him a sacrifice was to be made for the purification for the child as well why because the blessing of grace belonged to them too that's why in accordance with christ's command the church has always marked the children of believing parents with the sacrament of baptism. But you say, wait a second. What happens if they walk away? What happens if they rebel? Well, then they will be under severe judgment. They will be under an increased judgment for their rebellion. We do not presume anything with respect to our children. Indeed, it is precisely because they're baptized that we raise them the way that we do, that we sit them down when they're very young and we read to them from the children's Bible, that we tell them the stories of Scripture, that we pray with them so that they learn from the very earliest days to call upon their Heavenly Father. And there comes a point where we say to them, you get to do this because God has invited you into this. Because God has marked you with this. God has claimed you for this. You must trust Him as your heavenly Father. You must believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord. You must live out the power of of the Holy Spirit because God is your God. You're under obligation to this. As parents, as Christian parents, we don't sit back and twiddle our thumbs and say, God's got this taken care of. My kid's going to turn out perfect. I don't have to do a thing about it. No, it's exactly the opposite. We say, don't you see, child, don't you see the greatest gift you've received is that you were baptized. Being baptized is your identity. It's your heritage. It's your grace. Rejoice in the Lord. Embrace His promise. Live in this new... You don't want them to live in the rebelliousness of sin. You don't want them to live in the brokenness of of, uh, this, this fallen world. You want them to experience the riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ, so you call them to faith. You call them to trust from the earliest days you call them to faith. So that they might know their great privilege, that they might know their great grace. Baptism is not a ticket out of any trouble they may get into. It's a promise, a word from the Lord, an assurance so certain God never needs to repeat it. Because to repeat it is to doubt God. And we should resist any calls that invite us to doubt God. Instead, we should take Him at His word and say, Lord, Lord, You are faithful. For some of us, that may mean 
that we have never known a time when we didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There wasn't a time when we didn't live for the Lord. Oh, not perfectly, not, we're not trying in any way to suggest that somehow or another we're great, but rather that the Lord's faithfulness has surrounded us from the earliest moments of our memories. For some of us, maybe we didn't come to realize just how precious God's grace was until later. Maybe we lived a season of rebellion against God. Maybe we lived a, a, a time apart from the Lord's promises, tasting of the, the, the things of this world, living in the pleasures of sin for a season. But when we come to see how empty that is, when we come to see how meaningless that is, when we come to renew our commitment to the Lord, when we come to profess our faith in Jesus Christ, then we don't say, I figured it out. Then we don't say, I got it all worked out. And we say, isn't God wonderful? Because though I was unfaithful, yet He was faithful. Though I left Him, yet He sought me out. Though I was a sheep wandering on my own from His fold, the shepherd left the 99 and found me. So great is my God's love. So perfect is His faithfulness. So persistent is His grace that I stand upon the foundation of His love every day. Our children, our church, our community, our Christian community is the most blessed in all the world. We are all the most blessed of God. Not financially, not emotionally, not mentally, not politically, not any of those things that are passing away. But because we are marked by the rich grace of God, by the water of baptism, because we belong to His company of the redeemed. That's what our children need to know. That's what we as parents need to impress upon them. They are princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. They need to understand how great is their privilege. And we do too. Baptism should be for all of us a constant encouragement. Let's thank the Lord for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we could hardly have come up with so rich a gift as the doctrine of baptism. We could have hardly, Lord, filled such a simple ritual with so profound a meaning. If we had designed, Lord, this sacrament, it would have been superficial. It would have been empty. It would have been trite. But Lord, it is so full of meaning because you are the one who has given it to us. Because you know that our hearts are so often weak. You know that our spirits are so often strained. That we need encouragement as we face the challenges of life. Lord, may we turn our minds in those dark moments, in those doubtful moments, in those discouraged moments, even in those joyful moments, in those blessed moments, in those times of experiencing afresh and anew the wonders of your grace, may we turn our minds again to your promises to us in baptism and say, my fountain of blessing flows not because of my power, strength, or ability, but all our fountains are in you, the living and loving God, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Then our song of response is hymn 100.